Hello, and welcome to Teacher Tales, a podcast from the spirit of teaching. This is your host, Linda Markley, and I invite you to join me and my guests as we get curious, explore, discover, and learn more about what is really at the heart of teaching. In each episode, we will hear the story of a teacher, what called them to teach, what are their greatest joys and challenges in teaching, what inspires them, and what are their hopes, dreams, and vision for the education of children. We will learn more about the greatest lessons they have taught and also the greatest lessons they have learned. No checklists, no standards, no reports, no paperwork, and no data. Just stories from their hearts to our hearts on a journey to celebrate what really matters in the true spirit of teaching. Well, hello everyone and welcome back to Teacher Tales. I am so happy that you're here because I'm so excited about my guest today because she's a very dear friend. She's been a dear friend for a long time, someone that I've gotten to know very well and learned a lot from. I admire and respect tremendously. Um, she's like the consummate teacher and uh, just a role model for, for all of us. So I'm going to let her introduce herself and we're going to dive into all the special qualities of this special guest. Thanks, Linda. Um, my name's Pam Benton and I have known Linda for many, many long years. <laughs> we probably don't want to say exactly how many. Um, and I'm really honored to be on the podcast today because um, I feel very much about Linda the same way she feels about me. And I, I really appreciate her experience and, um, and what she brings. And so I'm looking forward to chatting with her as I always do. Um, I am currently the World Languages Specialist in Pinellas County Schools. And I've been doing this for a little over seven years. And prior to that, I taught um, for 27 years in a variety of different contexts. Um, many of those years in Pinellas County Schools, I taught Spanish and French, and I, I did a little bit of Japanese and Korean um, in a sixth grade wheel at one point. Um, and then um, I taught in Leon County Schools for three years, or maybe about two, two and a half, something like that. And I worked for the union for a little while, and I've lived in a couple of different countries and done some teaching there. So. Um, since I got out of college, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've had a lot of experiences and you've had a lot of um, lessons probably that you've learned from all of them and you've brought, you've had to be adaptable to things. You've had to be resilient. Um, you've had uh, teachers are always asked to do things like starting at the pandemic out of their comfort zone, you know, but how are you going to adapt? and survive and do your job. And you have done that in so many ways. Um, and in all of that experience you bring to your teachers now as a district supervisor, but also to organizations where you're the, on the board of that organization. And so you bring that wisdom from your experience and you know, your expertise now. So let's start with teaching overseas. You know, first of all, why did you become a teacher and how did you become a teacher you know, in Japan and in Korea and Costa Rica? And you know, that's just a very diverse uh, portfolio there of experience. 
Well, I had kind of different situations with each one of those. Um, the oldest one is Japan, so um, I'll talk about that first. Um, here in, in Pinellas County Schools, Pinellas is the St. Petersburg Clearwater area of Florida. And um, Pinellas County Schools um, has a program that they administer in conjunction with the city of Clearwater. And Clearwater has been sister cities with Nagano City, Japan for 63 years. And it's one of the oldest sister cities relationships in the country. And we have a teacher exchange, a middle school student exchange, and a high school student exchange that we do each year. It's, all of those are on hold still because of the pandemic, but um, those go back to the early 80s is when, um, when they started those. So as a young teacher, I started teaching in 1989, and as a young teacher, I was selected to go on the Nagano City um, Sister Cities Teacher Exchange in the 92-93 school year. And so I went to Nagano City, Japan. I lived with two different host families, one for first semester and one for second semester. And I taught at um, four different junior highs, and I was a couple of weeks at a high school. I don't I don't really remember how that happened, but it wasn't an official part of the program, but but I spent a couple of weeks at the high school. And so um, in terms of adapting, uh, Japan, I would say, is just about as different from the U.S. as, as you can get, um, I, you know, culturally speaking, definitely. Um, it it was interesting. Um, you know, the whole the whole concept of the Sister Cities program and the teacher exchange, their idea, they, they knew that they were going to have the Olympics, um, the Winter Olympics were going to be in Nagano in 1997. And at the time when I went there, there were essentially almost no foreigners in Nagano. Nagano is in the Japan Alps. It's completely surrounded by mountains. Beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous place. Um, it's a city of, well, it's, I think it's bigger now, but at the time I went, it was around 300,000 people. And at the time that the sister cities relationship was forged, that I think they were selected because Clearwater and Nagano were roughly the same size and had the same kind of um, business interests and things like that. Nagano has a ton of tourism because of hot springs and skiing and ski resorts and things like that. Clearwater, of course, has the beautiful beach. Um, so it was interesting. Um, the message that they gave to the teachers, maybe not the very best um, to make the teaching experience fantastic. Um, it was essentially their message was, hey, foreigners are going to be coming here because of the Olympics. You guys um, need to get ready for it. So here's an American. Have them co-teach with you. And, of course, there was no training in co-teaching or, or anything like that. So um, I had a variety of experiences at the different schools. Um, I did spend a lot of time being a, a human um, like recording almost. <laughs> um, I did spend time um, sitting on a stool at the front of classrooms um, 
when they would speak Japanese for 15 minutes and then they would turn to me and say, Miss Pam, please turn to page four and read. <laughs> and I would open the book to page four and I would read a passage in English and sometimes they would just listen. Sometimes the kids would repeat after me. Sometimes it, but at the different schools, um, I had different experiences and there were a couple of them where I would say we actually did truly co-teach and um, I think it was a good experience for me in terms of learning to collaborate with people. And even with people who are kind of reluctant to collaborate with, with you, um, that's never a, a positive experience. But I think it can turn into it just a little at a time. You know, you, um, I, I can remember one particular teacher who really did not want me in his classroom. He, I think he was embarrassed. He felt like his English wasn't good enough. And um, he didn't necessarily want this foreign person to know that his English wasn't good enough. And yet he was an English teacher. And, and, um, you know, and I certainly have known foreign language teachers here in the U.S. who felt like that, who, you know, you never heard them speak the foreign language because they, you know, were self-conscious about it, et cetera. But, um, but, you know, you get to know people a little at a time, just like we do with students. Um, you you get to know them and you get to know about them and what's interesting to them. And you you find connections and you find ways to um, to kind of get along. And maybe it's in the context of what you're actually teaching and doing. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's something completely different and separate. So um, but I really enjoyed that. I think um, I think I learned a lot living in Japan. Um, my host families were wonderful and amazing. Um, my first host family was um, a middle-aged, I would say probably mid-40s married couple, and they did not have children, which is very, very unusual. And um, so it was a different, the, the host mother um, was a piano teacher. And so they had a beautiful, very modern home and on the second floor, they had this huge room with a grand piano in it. And um, she taught her students there. And it was a very quiet and calm place to live. And that was cool. And then my second host family was um, a family with a mom and a dad and the grandma and um, a boy who was in middle school or junior high and a, a boy in elementary school. And they had a lot of close family members nearby, brothers and sisters of both of the parents and their families. And, and so that was more of them. And their house was about 300 years old, the traditional Japanese style with the shoji screens and the tatami mats on the floor. And so um, I actually loved both of those families and I got along with them great. Um, it was a lot of fun. I'm still in touch with the second host family. And that was I left there in 1993 and I did get to see them. I've been back to Japan twice since then. And um, I did get to see them both times. And so that's, that's kind of cool. I mean, I think, you know, the host families did not speak English and I didn't speak much Japanese when I went, I took some lessons for a few months, but, but I think, you know, you can, I can remember when I moved to the second host family's um, home, the host mother and I would have hours long conversations and she would speak Japanese and I would speak English and we could understand each other. You know, we would look up a word here and there or something if, if one of us, but we, we figured it out, you know, and, and I think you can, 
you can communicate with people. People underestimate um, will and, you know, like wanting to understand somebody mm -hmm. and, and how important that is in in conversation and communication. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think, I think that's one of the biggest things that I learned there was that you can really make a connection with anybody, even people that you have nothing in common with almost. You can find some way to mm -hmm. communicate and connect with them. So I think that would be my big, my big lesson mm -hmm. from Japan. I really love that, though, and how teachers can apply that now, even in the classroom or in their relationships and life outside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And it's like the collaborating, you know, finding a way to collaborate because teachers, sometimes we isolate because we are afraid like that one that you were working with, right. because we're afraid of being seen, we're afraid of being judged. And so we have to find a way to make a connection and mm -hmm. make that connection work so that we can collaborate together and make, you know, everything better, including ourselves and our relationships. And, and it's all for the students in the end. And the communication part right now, there are yeah. so many emotions coming up that communication mm -hmm. is getting um, hot wired in different directions yeah. and, you know, hijacked because of those emotions. So mm -hmm. um, that will and that intention of like, uh -huh. but this is what I want every day. I want to be able to be calm. I want to be able right. to make a connection. I want to always do my best. Making right. that intention and then just communicating about it and yeah, to yourself absolutely. and to others. So I love that, that those were, and I see that in how you interact with people that you learn those lessons. And it's real, the really great skills that you've learned from that adaptability to mm, be able thanks. to, um, to be effective in your job, but also mm. in how you work with other people in leadership positions and everything. So um, another the thing that I know about you is when you were, um, and this was, this just amazed me was when you were the um, homebound teacher for, you know, or the teacher for the homebound students in Pinellas County. So the ones that were, you know, having to come in virtually, and it was mm -hmm. like a spattering of students around the district. And so I exaggerated earlier, I said, you know, when you had <laughs> 22 preps, Pam, and you said, no, there were only 13, you know, but still only 13. <laughs> and so that's another aspect of teaching that teachers are asked to do all of these different things. And, and, and to in differentiation now, like we have to meet all of these different students needs, we have to have data right. for it and evidence and everything. So what did you what did you learn from that? How did you manage that many preps? And the emotional load of these are kids that are home that are sick, or that have some, you know, some something that is an issue or a problem, or it might be something that you could take into your heart and carry as a heavy load, you know, how, how do we manage that? I think, well, a couple of things. I think in terms of the students and the issues that they were dealing with, um, these are kids who had been identified as, you know, maybe um, they had cancer or they had, 
been in an accident and broken uh, tons of bones in their bodies or, you know, whatever the reason was that they were in the hospital homebound program, it was because they couldn't, they were too sick to go to school or there was something that was preventing them from going to school. That was an identified issue. I don't think it's different, though, from what a regular teacher does on a regular day. Because the students in your classroom, you might not always be able to look at them and see that they have, you know, some sort of problem or issue, but they do. I mean, all of your kids come in with, with different things going on in their lives. And sometimes it's a mental illness. Sometimes it's um, a broken family and, and problems there. Um, you know, you, do, you don't know what the students are dealing with. And I think in terms of an individual teacher's compassion and caring and the load of that, I don't think it's different for a hospital homebound teacher than it is for any other teacher. I think all of us care about our students and all of us, um, you know, try to meet them where they are. That's, that's all you can do. And I, in some ways, maybe that's even harder when you're not in a program like Hospital Homebound, because I probably had around 60 total students in 13 different classes, but around 60 total students. And so that's a lot fewer students to try and connect with and to try and keep track of. Plus, I had a piece of paper that told me exactly what the problem was that student was experiencing. And so I went into it better able maybe to be compassionate and to understand that student and to understand them. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of my teachers um, in my district have 230 students and every one of them has their own story. And I think that my teachers do an incredible and amazing job at making connections with all of those students and getting to know them and meeting them where they are as much as they possibly can. But, um, but I think it's even harder in your regular everyday world language classroom than it was for me in, in um, hospital homebound. And I think the adaptation of doing everything online, we've all experienced that now. You know, <laughs> prior to that, we had not experienced that. And so when I was teaching most of those classes online, I did occasionally go out to a student's home or to a treatment center or a hospital to teach um, an individual student if online was not a possibility for them. But, um, but most of the classes were online. And um, I know that, that adapting to doing that, I was actually doing online teaching, very much like we did last year, even prior to taking the job at Hospital Homebound. I worked in Hospital Homebound from, oh gosh, it must have been 2010 to 2015. And so, um, but prior to that, um, I, I taught AP Spanish language and literature at Boca Ciega um, High School here. And we had students all over the district who wanted to take the AP Spanish courses and there weren't enough students at their particular school in order to make a class. And so those students, I would have my live students in front of me at Boca Ciega, and then we used a program, I know Linda's familiar with this, called Illuminate. And um, the students would join us 
Um, it's like the precursor to Blackboard Collaborate or Blackboard, some of those things. Um, and the students would join us. Um, we didn't have video. They could see um, like a projected PowerPoint. So I did everything on PowerPoint with a smart board so they could see what I was doing and if I circled something or highlighted or whatever. And um, then they had the, the audio. So I had a snowball mic and so they could hear the other students in the class and we had their, the um, speakers so the other students could hear them. And um, you know, that's, that's not the perfect way to learn as we all learned very strongly. <laughs> um, but it's better than not being able to take the class. and. Um, and the students did very well, you know, with all of that. So um, I did that, oh gosh, probably for four or five years, I would guess, before I started doing hospital homebound. And then I continued with the two AP classes while I taught at hospital homebound. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I had that, a little bit of that experience ahead of time. And I'm really grateful for that experience because I think if I had not had that, it would have been much harder for me to help my teachers transition when we had to go all online and, and to be able to talk through, because, you know, everybody has different strengths. And for some people, technology is not one of their strengths. And so, because I had already had the experience of troubleshooting and, and doing all of that kind of thing during my time at Hospital Homebound, it helped me to be able to help troubleshoot for my teachers and to help them troubleshoot for their students. So. Mm -hmm. I heard a lot of C words um, in all of our conversation up to this point. And I don't know, I make connections a lot. You know, that's one of my strengths. And so I was thinking of, of C and how C is average. And so really how we, you know, maybe that's the average of what we need to do to adapt and to be resilient is all of those things like caring and compassion and connections and communication and collaboration. And um, it, th those, are, those are really important C words, which like I said, C in a grading scale is average. Uh -huh. And that's okay um, for, yeah. for, for that. We don't have to be striving for more than that or uh -huh. maybe um, some other goal or standard or, you know, uh -huh measurement that somebody else puts on us and everything. Mm -hmm. So um, that when right. we, when we have those four in the forefront and those are our goals, those are our intentions at all times. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that helps us to adapt and figure things out and find a way. So Absolutely. let's segue into, because you have so many experiences and that's what we, that's what lessons are in life is they are experiences that teach us things and how do we keep mm -hmm. moving forward. So you worked with the union for a while too. I did. So, I did. So yeah, I, um, like? I was, they called the title was Uniserve director um, at my particular one. I was, um, I worked for the union in, in Orange County, Florida, um, Orlando. And um, I was there for about two years. Um, and my title from them was organizational consultant. NEA overall in the country says Uniserve director, but organizational consultant, I think is a little more descriptive. Um, basically my job was, I was a liaison to a lot of committees. So um, because I could speak Spanish and I was the only professional employee in the office who could speak Spanish, I was a liaison to 
um, the Hispanic caucus of both the Democratic and Republican parties. Um, and then a lot of, I did a lot of work with the government relations and the political action committees um, for those. And I had been involved with the union my entire career as a teacher. I was always a building rep. Um, gosh, I think I probably became a building rep during my very first year teaching. If not, if not my first year, it was my second year. Um, it was very early on. And um, I was on the board of directors for the local union here in Pinellas. And um, so I went through training. And again, you know, the training, honestly, it's skills that teachers have. It's, it's communication skills. It's how to effectively present, you know, a message, how to, um, how to help people, how to, how to connect with people in a way that they'll trust you. I know people who are listening can't see me, but I am an extremely white woman. <laughs> I have very, very white skin and blue eyes and red hair. And um, so I would talk to people on the phone. People would call me because they were in trouble at their school or had been accused of something or, or whatever. And this, you know, sometimes it was teachers. Most of the teachers spoke English well enough that they were comfortable to, to speak to somebody in English. But I worked also with, you know, maintenance workers, custodians, uh, bus drivers, um, food service workers, all of the different support professionals in the district. And very often, um, especially in Orlando, those those folks cannot speak English very well. And so I would, they would come to me. Um, we had a big Haitian Creole speaking population. So I would speak French to them and they would speak Creole to me. And, and then the, of course the Hispanic population is huge there. And um, we would talk on the phone and then we would organize for me to be able to go and represent them at whatever meeting that they had been called to for disciplinary reasons or whatever. And we would talk on the phone and do all of our prep and everything. But then the first time that they would meet me would be, you know, at the district office, we would arrange to meet in the lobby and they would come in and they would say, well, I want to, where's the lady that I talked to on the phone? And I'd say, well, I am the lady you talked to on the phone. And would say, no, she's Spanish. I'd say, well, do you notice we're speaking Spanish right now? <laughs> is, it was me. And it was really hard for them to relate, you know. And I think I learned, you know, you, you have to learn how to very quickly calm people down. I think it's a skill all teachers have, you know, how to de-escalate a situation. This is somebody who's already stressed out and they're, we're going to go in and I'm going to be their representative in a disciplinary hearing. And so I needed to make a connection with them and mm -hmm. it would be great. They would feel good about the person they talked to on the phone, but what, then when they saw me, they they were really worried and they thought, oh no, that can't be the person I talked to on the phone. And, um, which is a compliment in some ways. <laughs> and, um, but, but I think that I, I think I gained through that. I gained skills of being able to quickly help people become calm and more comfortable, um, build their confidence in me. And, you know, so that when we went in, they would feel comfortable with listening to my advice or my suggestions about, mm -hmm. you know, what they should say or not say or what they should do or not do. And so um, I think I, I took a lot away from that. Um, 
I also, I can't underestimate, I had to learn a lot when I worked for the union about um, things like the Florida retirement system and then the new, the new investment system they brought in that passed during the time that I was working for the union. A lot of things like that. I still use that information now, today. Um, parliamentary procedure. I mean, working with the union, I was in a million meetings where they used parliamentary procedure. So then subsequently, I think maybe was I your, yours first or Jan's first? You were Jan's first, but okay. I was like, when I became president of FFLA, I was like, I want that lady for my yeah. parliamentarian. <laughs> Because so, you're just very calm and you're very, um, you're very to the point and you know how the rules are and how people should treat each other. And Right, yeah, right. So. And, I, you know, and a lot of the, the union's very serious, especially in their larger meetings about very strictly following parliamentary procedure. And in the various organizations that I'm part of, I'm on the ACTFL board right now, and ACTFL is very serious about following parliamentary procedure very, very carefully and accurately because they want to do everything legally and on the up and up and, you know, transparently. And I, I really admire that. Um, and I think that, you know, it, for me, one of the struggles is, um, being in smaller organizations that are somewhat less formal and figuring out what parts of parliamentary procedure are really important <laughs> to be able to keep things on an even keel and to keep things polite and pleasant for everybody and to keep things going and um, what things we can kind of not worry about so much. <laughs> That's always a struggle. And I, I told somebody the other day, one of my pet peeves, as, as many years as I've worked, and I used to teach parliamentary procedures. I, I sponsored honor society and junior honor society at the schools I worked at. Um, and I would teach the kids parliamentary procedures so they could participate, you know, appropriately in meetings. And um, I don't know what it is that people cannot learn to say, I move. They always want to say I motion or I make a motion. And it just, it grates on me. It's one of my pet peeves. And it's, <laughs> it's so funny. And I have to like teach myself. It's a good lesson in letting things go. <laughs> Don't stress out about something silly like that. It's semantics. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. important. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think all of that comes into play. And I think it all helps. And just, just working with people, you know, getting to the bottom, I can remember going out to a school, they were having um, the, the cleaning people in the school, the, the, in Pinellas, we call those folks plant operators, but in other districts, they call them custodians. And um, the custodial staff was not getting along at this very large urban high school in Orlando. And they, they called me out there to see if I could help because they were all, almost all of them were Hispanic. And I went out and, and I talked to, there were like four different kind of small groups of these custodians who were angry with other of the small groups. And so I met with each small group individually and I said, well, what's going on? What's the problem? You know, tell me the problem. And I had everybody share. And it turned out it was cultural. It was all cultural misunderstandings. You know, when one of the plant, um, not plant operated, one of the crew chiefs, the evening crew chief was a Puerto Rican woman. And she had four 
um, African Americans on her staff, a couple of them were, you know, generations of their family had lived in the United States. Um, and then two of them were from the Dutch Indies. And so when she would go to talk to the African Americans who were from the United States, in an effort to show her that they were industrious and hardworking, they would continue working while she was talking to them. She grew up that that was the height of an insult would be to not stop and look someone in the eyes when they're talking to you. And so as soon as she understood their perspective and they understood her perspective, they got along fine because she thought that they were good workers, but she thought that they were disrespecting her all the time when they continued to work while she talked to them. And, you know, as soon as they understood each other and they understood, you know, the misunderstandings that were happening, then they were fine and they didn't have any problems anymore. But it's just, I think I learned a lot then about letting people talk. I know I worked um, for many years in the district as a mentor for PDIN, that's professional development, um, something needed. Now I can't, anyway, it's, it's the bad thing you can get on your evaluation. <laughs> you know, if, if you are, you know, not, it's not highly effective, it's not effective, it's professional development is needed kind of thing. And um, they would have me go in and, and work with um, these folks who, who needed a lot of help. And I would always spend a lot of time, the first two or three times I met with them, just asking them questions and getting them to talk. Get them to tell me, you know, what, what they think the problem is, what, you know, if they think something's unfair, what's unfair, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think a lot of times, it doesn't always have to be a cultural difference, but there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. I know in my whole career, because of my involvement with the union, I have an understanding of how systems work in government and in state and how school boards, you know, how the money comes in and how the decisions are made for how to use that money and who makes those decisions and how much control they actually have over things. And I think that a lot of the time, so much is going on. There's so much activity and there's everything is so intense in school systems that people don't take the time to, to explain things to people in a way that they can understand. And so I know lots of times, you know, a teacher will call me angry about something and they blame their principal or they blame our superintendent or they blame whatever. And a lot of times it's a federal law or a state law that has dictated whatever has upset them. And it's not because the superintendent decided to do that or the, the principal decided to do something. You know, it's, and it doesn't make the situation better necessarily, but it does help people calm down when they understand that this person that I know, this principal that's right here in the building with me that I see every day is not evilly trying to <laughs> ruin my life, you know, and, I think that if people took a little bit more time to explain the rationale um, or the impetus behind decisions or behind changes that 
it would be a little bit happier industry. People would would um, be calmer and understand a little bit better. And I see that as, as one of the huge advantages of having done the union work is that I do have a better understanding of that than the, than the average person out there who's not had that experience. And, um, and it does help me in helping teachers understand the systems a little bit better and to be able to navigate those a little bit easier, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I see that as a super strength of yours from your experiences is that whole like, I have, you know, I understand systems, I have this perspective, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to help you um, to work through the systems and have, you know, a perspective that you can deal with, or that's going right. to, you know, you can manage or whatever. Right, so, right. so that leads us to talking about your teachers and working with your mm -hmm. teachers. So all of this that we've talked about, and um, how your experiences, how do you bring them to the forefront and help? How does that help you with your teachers now? and the perspective of what they're going through and what are they asking for and what can you give them and what can't you do for them? Yeah. Um, I mentioned before that this is, I think this is my seventh year. I started in 2015. So I think I'm in my seventh year um, in this job. And it's really changed. Um, over the last couple of years, very strongly, um, it's my major goal in the last two and a half years, at least, has just been to make things as easy as possible for my teachers and to support them with whatever they need. And, you know, I would say prior to that, it, I was, it was a little more systems thinking um, in terms of, you know, I, as I would be out at schools and observing classes um, and talking to people, I would, I would get a feel for what training they needed, um, what, you know, what the interests were, what resources that we were providing that were working, what really wasn't working, or what were the things that nobody was really using we spent money on this and nobody's really using it. You know, all of those things work together so that I could put together um, trainings, professional development, et cetera, et cetera. I would say now, instead of being more of a systems thing, I, I'm trying to feel the pulse of what's going on with teachers because it's, it's kind of like um, things are up and down. It's kind of like a wave. Um, it is intense. And we, everybody thought that this year was going to be better than last year. It couldn't be worse than last year. And man, were we wrong? This is the worst. It's the worst year ever. And I think I spend a lot of time listening to my teachers and then giving them validation for how they're feeling. They, I think that Everybody, because, because we were separated and we were in our little silos at our houses and you were meeting with the kids online, but you didn't have your colleagues next door or, or anything on a regular basis, I think what happened is that all of us started to feel like we were the only ones who were experiencing 
the trauma. And, you know, a lot of people try to be very positive, and I think that's a good thing. But I think it's also good to be honest about how you're feeling sometimes. And, you know, if you're not honest, then, you know, if I only get to talk to my friends for five minutes once a week, I might feel like I should be very positive in that conversation because I don't want to bring my friend down and I don't want to be seen as a negative person. But on the other hand, that means that I'm not letting my true feelings out. And it also means that my friend probably is not letting their true feelings out either. And so we're both leaving that, you know, tiny little opportunity we got to connect thinking, oh, she's doing great. What's wrong with me? And beating ourselves up. And that's what I saw more than anything else is that I would talk to teachers um, early on, like in March, when we didn't come back to school after spring break, that was two years ago, I guess. And then the, the beginning of the school year last year, when everybody was online, um, it was, I, I just tried to make myself available. I wasn't allowed to visit schools. I wasn't allowed to go out. So I was just available on Teams. If you want something, call me. And the teachers did. And sometimes they would just call because they needed to complain about something, you know, and they needed somebody to listen to them complain who, who was sympathetic. Um, sometimes they'd call because a resource that they'd used a hundred times, they suddenly weren't getting there. And it was because, you know, they were too stressed out and they couldn't make it work. And so I could say, oh, now click, you know, on that button there and magically it would work. And then they'd be like, oh, you know, and so. I would get 20 or 30 calls a day from my teachers. I have around 150 teachers. And um, I would get 20 or 30 calls a day from people who just needed to see another person who was happy to see them. You know, and it was difficult. I, I know everybody can relate to this um, because the kids who, you know, you have to struggle to manage them and to get them to stay seated and, you know, talk in class if they're face-to-face, -face, suddenly were completely silent with their cameras turned off when they came to their online classes. And it was really difficult to get the kids to respond and to, and it's hard. I think particularly world language teachers are very, um, we're, we're people, people. <laughs> we're, we're so oriented to that human interaction. And that's what we love. And that's what, you know, gives us our joy. And when you're staring at a bunch of black squares with initials on them, um, it's really hard. It's really hard for people like us to, to deal with that and to know what to do with that. And it, it made my teachers feel like failures. And they felt like they were doing a bad job because the kids didn't want to turn their cameras on. And, because they, and you know, just trying to help the teachers understand that this is not unique to your class. This is what's happening in everybody's class. And then, you know, remember how traumatized the kids are by this. All that trauma that we're feeling, that we're grownups and we're trying to not pass on to other people and trying to, you know, make things okay for everybody else. The kids don't have the skills that we have to deal with this stuff. And so, you know, 
be kind, be kind to them, be kind to yourself. And, you know, don't, so I think I spend the, the majority of my time the last couple of years has been spent validating the way that people feel and helping them try, you know, trying to help them not feel so alone. And so, you know, I can't tell you, I told them the beginning of the school year this year, I did a whole speech at my district-wide training about how we're not going to use the word behind. I don't want to hear that from anybody. Nobody is behind. We're teaching for proficiency. There's no such thing as being behind. That's not on a hard and fast schedule, you know? And so some of my teachers are starting to get it and they're starting to understand. And I think that that's a real positive, but, um, but this whole idea of being behind, you know, behind what, behind whose measure, who's deciding this, I, I spend a lot of time helping the teachers understand that wherever you are, as long as you're doing the best you can and the kids are doing the best they can, that's the right place to be. And, you know, to stop looking, yes, we have pacing guides. Yes, we have, you know, don't worry about that so much. I mean, it's a guide. It's a guide. That's, it's not the Bible. It's not written in stone. It's not, you know, nobody's going to strike you down <laughs> if you only teach seven lessons instead of nine, you know, and it's so um, spending a lot of time with that kind of thing. So I think I see the schools that are struggling. And I know this is happening with um, people very close to me and also a lot of my close friends um, that are teachers where their school, the administration, or maybe even the culture of the school Uh is really still operating on the old systems and the way of doing things and measuring things and still trying to eke out learning gains. And the more that they are seeing that students, um, there are gaps that need to be made up. Like you said, it's not behind, there are no learning losses or anything. Uh there's a bit bit of a gap there. And so Uh it's going to take time and it's going to take more Uh effort to fill that gap. And, and that's perspective here again, like what we talked about, that's that perspective thing. And the ones that don't have that perspective or don't appreciate it or are operating out of fear, Uh those administrators are still pushing their teachers to the brink. They are controlling their teachers more and more and more you will all be teaching at the same, the same thing at the same time, the same lesson, the same mm-hmm. words. This is actually happening in schools. I and, know. and, yeah. and it is, it's, to me, it's, it's a crime. It's trauma to the teachers. It's trauma to mm-hmm. these children. And we don't know what that's going to show right. up and be like in the future. But yeah. so thank you for what you're doing with your teachers. And I hope that more administrators would hear some of these things and more leaders would step forward and say enough is enough. And we're not on the old system. Um, We're in a new system and we have to adapt to it. Right. Adapt to it. So yes, absolutely. Yep. So, so I think now we're going to go to, you said so many things, everybody's just going to have to sit and ruminate for a while, take lots of notes. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the podcast, I like to do like a, a little bit of a complete the sentence and there are no right or wrong answers. It's just what, you, what is your perspective on these things? Okay. Okay. Are you ready? All sure. right. So 
teaching is? Mm. Teaching is fun is the first thing that comes to my mind. I love teaching. Mm -hmm. So um, what is your favorite part of teaching? So my favorite part of teaching is? My favorite part of teaching is interacting with the students. The things that they come up with. One example, I taught AP Spanish literature for 12 years, I think. The same works. You would think over 12 years, I would have heard everything. And literally every single year, students would come up with perspectives, ideas, et cetera, for the same work that I have read how many thousands of times. And I think that that interaction with the kids and, and you know, getting to know them and hearing their perspectives, that there's nothing like that. Isn't that the joy of life is it learning is. from other people and their perspectives. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that, you know, I think is the, the, my greatest joy with doing the podcast is that yeah. with every teacher, you know, people think teaching is the same and all the teachers are the same and all that. No, it's not. And I get a right. different perspective and a different appreciation for everything and, and yeah. what teachers, who they are and what they do every day. Absolutely. Okay. So my best advice for a new teacher would be? To collaborate and to use the resources that are provided for you. What I see is new teachers try to reinvent the wheel on everything. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you, you're going to develop your own style and you're going to figure out how to do those things. But sometimes they overwhelm themselves by trying to be totally unique and different at the beginning. And then they get into a hole and they can't do it because there's not enough time and And, you know, so I would say collaborate with colleagues and use resources. And then as you do that, you'll find your style and you'll find what you want to continue with in the future. That is great advice. Yeah. But don't put the cart before the horse. You have to have some experiences and develop your own style. So, yes, so true. My greatest hope for all teachers is? Oh, I'm going to do a very short term one, <laughs> is that they don't spend the entire holiday working. And that's, that's what I am trying to convince my teachers of, not to spend the whole holiday working. We need to let go of it for a little while. We need to, um, we need to interact with with other adults <laughs> and, you know, um, spend time with our family and friends, um, relax, do things that that bring us joy um, outside of work. I get lots of joy in work, too. But but outside of work, um, we've got to do that disconnection in order to do stronger connections later. Mm, I love that do that disconnection for stronger connections later. Yeah. If, if I were Oprah, I would be saying, tweet, tweet now, everybody, tweet, tweet. <laughs> Pam just said something very profound. Okay, last one. If I could change one thing in education, it would be? Oh, only one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the quandary. <laughs> wow. 
Um, well, I'll, I'll make that one really simple. It would be that in the United States, people would value the study of world languages or the learning of, of languages. Um, I think that's one of the hardest things, and Linda certainly knows my struggles with this, um, about being in a district position, is I knew as a teacher that we were not highly valued, but man, is it apparent when you're at the district level about how, you know, I, I wish people understood what students get out of languages. And, you know, even just the brain research alone, you know, the connections that students make and the, the data's there. I mean, it's right there. And people don't know it and don't care. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that would be the biggest thing is that is that in general, people would understand the value of, of learning a language. Well, with learning a language, what they don't understand is that they learn about the culture, not just the language, but the culture and culture mm -hmm. as, you know, our profession defines it, natural as products, practices, perspectives, mm -hmm. and those practices and perspectives are huge um, yeah, as far as how we approach life as um, individuals, you know, living our journey through life or as mm -hmm. teachers in the classroom, that right. perspective. So, yeah, well, absolutely. Well, that would be my hope too. So, but, but again, a long list. A long list yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hard to narrow that one down. <laughs> yes. So everybody put it on your Christmas list. So yeah. thank you, my dear friend. You have oh, just thank you, so much wisdom and so much, um, you know, experiences that, uh, that are going to inspire and guide, guide teachers to where well, I really they want to be. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you. Hello again, everyone. This is your host, Linda Markley, and I'd like to invite you to nominate a teacher to be a guest on the podcast and to share their story. All you have to do is go to www.spiritofteaching.org and fill out the nomination form. Again, that's www.spiritofteaching.org. Also, please share, rate, and give some feedback to help us better serve you in the spirit of teaching. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to having you back next time on Teacher Tales.